Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast, where each week Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. And as we are moving ever closer to the end of our time together, at least as far as team number one, I'll introduce myself as Alan Sanders, host of the Wilder Ride podcast. And I can introduce myself as Walt Murray, the co-host of the Wilder Ride podcast. And here we are, Walt, Thursday, just two more minutes to go, and we're going to still be in the nose of this B-17 bomber as it treks across America. We got some pretty good information yesterday about uh, Homer, about how he was a mechanic, he was below deck, didn't really see a lot of the combat or a lot of the action until a bomb went through his flat top, and they all had to abandon ship, and he ended up finding out that his, you know, he was explosions and fire, and the last thing we left yesterday was he said, you know, I woke up, I was on a destroyer, and my hands were off. Man, that's brutal. And for a guy who joined the Navy, that's kind of the last thing you expect to have happen to you. Right. I mean, well, first of all, I don't know that anybody goes in expecting to lose limbs or be maimed. I guess people always assume I could die, but, you know, to you know, be somehow, and we don't get the exact detail. We mentioned this yesterday. We don't get the exact detail, just that, he, his hands must have been injured somehow, whether they were on fire uh, to the extent, or like you mentioned, could have been injuries that were also complicated by all the amount of diesel fuel and just the salt water and being in the water. We don't know, but it was decided before he even came to that the best course of action was to remove his hands and provide these prosthetic hooks. Uh, that's just terrible. So let's go ahead and get into it, because one of the things I said yesterday is, I'm wondering if we're going to hear a little of the backstory of the other two guys, but before we can even find out more about them, you know, Homer has a pretty interesting line here. You know, one of the things, well, you and I talked about yesterday, and I, I mentioned it and you kind of agreed, how much of what we're seeing from Homer is he's really okay with what's happened, you know, he's come to terms with it, and how much of it is he putting on a brave face and deep down he's still got some resentment or anger or, 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 or whatever. And how much are we getting? Because his first line here is basically after waking up after all the explosions and after all of the you know calamity and jumping off the ship. After that, he says, I had it easy. And Al goes, easy? So I mean, when you were listening, before I even go to his next line, what are your thoughts at this moment? I mean, it's right here at the beginning of minute number nine. Yeah, it fits a little bit with what we've seen from him so far that... He is kind of a easygoing guy, and he he at least has a level of acceptance of all this. Um, but it, it, you do see, you know, you see a little bit of it creep through in that next line. But um, yeah, I mean, it, for somehow he's been able to accept what cards he's been dealt here. You know, I I kept thinking as we were slowing this down because it, it hit me as weird and not weird in, a, in in like he's lying or anything just in a strange way and then i started wondering well have you known anybody that's gone through any kind of significant rehab especially burn rehab let alone having to learn a, to, to use a prosthetic uh not burn but a friend of mine was in a wreck um she had been like homecoming queen and stuff like that and she broke she was in a, in a car wreck where she got hit by a cement truck and broke every bone in her face. She lost an eye. 
she had to teach herself to walk again. Um, I mean, it was a horrific accident. And even to this day, she still has some um, memory loss issues. And uh, her, I mean, it totally changed her personality. So, yeah. Um, and then her dad was in a bike wreck about a year later, and he was training for a triathlon, and he was paralyzed from the waist down. So, uh, and you know, their family was very close to our family. So yeah, I've known some people who've been through some pretty rough stuff. Yeah. And, and the stories I have of anybody that I know kind of second and third hand, thankfully, I guess in my immediate family, we haven't had this issue. It's, it's not easy going through, you know, post-traumatic therapy, whether it's learning how to use a hand again, learning how to walk again, learn how to read Braille or to read lips, depending on what your injury or handicap is. So I keep thinking, you know, post-injury, your life did not just get easier. Your life got a lot harder for a short period of time, well, depending on how long you took to, to accept and overcome. It's a challenge. And yet he says, well, after, after the explosions, after the fire, after leaping from the ship and coming to, I had it easy after that. Is that a comment about just how horrible it was to be in the midst of that combat, that, he, that going through the hell of rehab in his mind was lot easier than being you know still in the fleet that's what i wondered is if he you know he talks about the fire and the explosions and everything if he didn't kind of look around and go man you know there are guys who are burned over 90 percent of their body and there are guys who aren't going home right and if a little bit of that didn't give him some perspective but still not i mean you're not talking about an easy thing to get over, like his life will never be the same. He will deal with this the rest of his life. Right. I mean, I'm like Al. I mean, I'm, I'm incredulous. Easy. You know, I, the only thing I could think of as we were preparing for this minute was it's sort of the irony of saying, well, yeah, as horrific as you might imagine, I'd rather go through this than warfare again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he is talking to two guys from the army who, you know, Guys in the army were living in the mud and the muck and um, hand-to-hand combat. And there were some things that they had that was a lot more difficult than living on a ship and eating three square meals a day. And um, even though, I mean, not to minimize how hard Navy life was in World War II, um, but there is some perspective here, I think, from him of, you know, you were on a bomber and you were... Uh, you know, kind of a grunt. So they have seen different things, you know, Mm -hmm. in different horrific parts of the war. So maybe there is a little bit of that for him. Hey, I was on a Navy ship and, you know, I, I wasn't getting shot at. Nobody was firing flack at me. And uh, so from that side, maybe it was easier. I don't know. I, he's got a really interesting, way of looking at the world now. I also wonder how much of it is coming from somebody who's still technically young, doesn't have a family to come back home to. I mean, like a wife and children. He's got a girlfriend. We're going to find out in this minute, but I wonder how much of it is still the bravado or the somebody who's younger that hasn't necessarily lived long enough yet to understand how much life still has to offer. Right. Is it, is it kind of a, uh, a, a gallant view of the world that, you know, he did his bid, he fought and yay, you know, if the worst that happened to me is to lose my hands, look, I can still do all this stuff. In fact, his next line, 
As he's like, look, they took care of me fine. They trained me to use these things. I can dial the telephone. I can drive a car. I can even put nickels in the jukebox. And he goes, I'm all right. And then I think that's where we get sort of the hammer drop. Because he's, he, he, he gets out the word but and just kind of like sits, turns around, and just takes a long drag on his cigarette, leaves the other two guys hanging. Well, I think there is also an interesting line in there that he looks at Al and, uh, and Al says, um, you had it easy. And he said, that's what I said. And, and he kind of shoots back at him, you know, that he doesn't want to be questioned about it. And it's, it's almost like, in my mind, I have constructed a reality that says that I had it good and I'm not, I, I don't want to be challenged on that. Hmm. No, I think you're right. I think we're, we're, and this is what made me wonder the last couple of days, how much of this is, and maybe it's a combination, how much of it is bravado, how much of it is putting on the act of being okay, and how much of it is truly being okay. And I, I would kind of wonder, Alan, if he even knows at this point, because it it's still new. He has not been home yet. He hasn't seen his parents, and they're going to have a reaction. Any siblings, they haven't reacted yet and his girlfriend who he's going to tell us about here in a minute um none of them have seen it so there probably is some bravado there's some nervousness there is some um looking into the unknown at least in military life he knew how each day was going to go they were going to continue to do therapy with him and and he had the familiarity with military life, but now everything's about to change when those uh, tires hit the ground in um, in Boone City. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, and, and I'm hoping this isn't too much of a spoiler for our uh, friends who have not yet finished season two of The Mandalorian, but in chapter 15, there's this great scene inside of a, of a lounge inside of, a, of an Imperial base where uh, the Mandalorian, who has become a uh, Showing his face along with the uh, the the con the uh, the ex con I guess they had to break out to help them get past the imperial security. There's this great moment where there is a zealot for the empire and a, a military person uh, you know just all in for what the empire represents. And one of the comments he makes it, that just to me struck me still, and I love the line is, "Everybody thinks they want freedom when all they really want is order." And that military life gives people order. It gives people a sense of, we are going to tell you what's going to happen every day, each day. We're going to regiment your life so you don't even have to necessarily think. And there's a comfort that comes with that when you're in the military, especially under high-pressure situations, to believe that there are people above you that are going to make sure that what you're doing makes sense and you just got to do what you're told and not think about the bigger picture, not worry. And now you're going into the civilian world where... That regiment, that 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 sense of order that the military was giving you isn't going to be there. Well, you know, we talk about this some at work. I, I've had to interview guys in prison, and there are just some guys that that need or want that prison environment. And it's usually guys who've been there a long time, that they've either served multiple multiple terms or they have um you know, been there for decades and they have this institutional mentality Mm -hmm. where they need to know what time to get up in the morning. They need to know when to go out to the yard. They, 
need their meals cooked for them. They need that organization. And um, I think, you know, there are places we get that in our society, military life, prison, uh, other places. But uh, I, I think that has to be a comfort for him right now. I keep thinking of that line from Shawshank Redemption when they talk about once you're institutionalized, how do you survive in the outside world? How many people commit another crime just to come back or they can't handle the pressure of all that freedom that, that they've been so broken with the institutionalization that they've been, they've grown accustomed to that they have, they, you know, they, it leads to alcohol problems or drug problems or even suicide. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it's tough. And I, I think we still don't fully understand PTSD and, and things like that, that go with coming back. Uh, from combat and in difficult situations, so um, it is uh, it, it is a a really difficult life that he is about to embark on. Yeah, I'm wondering, are we catching? And maybe because he's also the kid, and he's not necessarily introspective. I know the, which is weird being in radio, but I'll, often, which is funny, I'll sit there for when I'm not on air, I'll be silent for hours. I won't even say anything. I'll just be thinking. And I think part of that is just age. You tend to maybe internalize more. You start, you know, you're just, you're alone with your thoughts. When when I was a lot younger, I was always talking and just shooting off and whatever popped into my head, I'm just going with. And I wonder how much we're getting a sort of younger way of looking at this situation of going home through Homer's eyes versus what we're going to maybe see from the older guys because they are a little older. They have been around a little bit longer. They've got a little more experience under their belt, but also with that experience comes that weariness of what life might actually be like now that they're going home. Right. And oddly, the actor at this point is 31 years old. Um, well, I guess the actor's actually a little bit older than that, but assuming that it's about 1945 when they're making this trip, um, Harold Russell, the actor was born in 1914. So he would have been 31 right at the end of the war. So he'd have been a little bit older as far as, um, guys in those Navy jobs were, but, um, yeah, but as far, as far as character, I don't know if we're supposed to look at the actor's age. I think we're supposed to get somebody that's a bit younger, sort of maybe somebody who might've been in their mid twenties, like early twenties, yeah. because he talks about, I had a yeah. girl sort of that high school thing. You know, I was gonna I was going to get married after high school, but I had to join the, you know, join the war effort. So you almost get the sense he's supposed right. to be maybe 19, 20, 21 years old. And he makes the comment at one point that she's just a kid. And she's never seen anything like exactly. This. And I don't think it means, which we're going to get to in a second, because I do want to. I did want to ask you about why he uses that phrase. Uh, so before we jump to that, let's all uh, let's put a pin in the kid comment, and let's go back to uh, right after. And you mentioned it about Al going easy. And he's like, "That's what I said." You know, like, what are you deaf? <laughs> right. But I don't think it's necessarily mean. But there is sort of a sense of, "Hey, that's what I said." You know, they took care of me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And when he pauses on that, but I love this moment because one of the hardest things to teach, especially a younger actor, because it's so hard to let silence sit there. You feel like, okay, someone should say something. And the two older actors here in the, in the room, but also the two older gentlemen, they let him pause. They let him turn away from them. He takes the drag on his cigarette and it takes a good three or four seconds before Fred finally goes, but what sailor? And it's such a genuine moment because 
he just lets it sit there like, I'm not going to push you. I'm not going to rush you. Let's just see. And then I, I'm going to give it some time and you don't answer. So now I'm going to say, but what? And it felt really genuine to me. It wasn't, it didn't feel like memorized lines where they're just forcing the dialogue. And it's really hard to get actors to feel comfortable with silence. I think it's tough for everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when we train people to do interviews with witnesses, it's okay to sit there after you've asked a question and let it stew. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you do have to push it along a little bit, but a lot of times when, you know, you've asked a question and the person's just sitting there, they're kind of thinking through what they want to say. So if you jump in and let them off the hook, then um, you kind of miss a moment sometimes. But here, I think that it's totally appropriate the way that he handled it, that he gave him that three or four or five second silence. And then he says, okay, what is it? Because he needed that prompting. And I love, and maybe, maybe part of it is because don't forget the, that uh, Samuel Goldwyn, you know, tried to send and actually did for a, for a little bit before the director flipped out, did send the actor here to, to, to some acting lessons. He's like, Oh, he's too raw. He's too, he's not polished. He doesn't know what he's doing. And the director's like, no, that's exactly what I want. I want Harold to give me an actual performance. I don't want it to look scripted and rehearsed and polished. And I, I, I love this next line where he goes, well, well, you see, I've got a girl and it feels like it's like a, such an innocent thing you want to say, but he almost feels weird saying it, you know, and, he, and it comes across as, ah, I know this seems weird, but you know, I got this girl and yeah, I don't know when I hear it, I just feel like, okay, this is a typical teenager. All of a sudden, this is a kid who's been through hell and he's, he's grown up. He's a man. Technically, obviously, but when it comes to this, when it comes like that moment of high school and the awkwardness of dating and the awkwardness of approaching the opposite sex and how do you handle yourself and how do you talk and how do you all that got put on hold. He goes away and experiences stuff that the overwhelming majority of all humankind will not experience. And now he's going to come back and what pick up where he left off. Yeah. Um, it, and that is one of the most. It, incredible and horrifying things for me is thinking about over the the years how men have transitioned out. My great 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 grandfather after the Civil War they thought he was dead and 3 months after the war ended he comes walking down the road and he had been in Virginia when the war ended and he basically took trains and walked home. And so he had months to kind of think through and stew on and talk to other vets and, um, and get home. He still had some problems afterwards, but he had a long time to think about it. Yeah. And then my dad went from the jungles of Vietnam to being back in the United States in less than 24 hours. And these guys kind of have a little bit of a, you know, probably a few days that they went from their post mm-hmm. to home. So it it is a, it just seems like such a short time to transition after, um, after you've been through something like that. Yeah. And I, and I get the older guys understand, you know, because having relationships sometimes gives you that hope or that spark of, I've got something to live for, something to come back home to. Yeah. Because Fred immediately says, She knows what happened to you, doesn't she? She's not going to be 
completely taken off guard, right? But Homer has a wonderfully introspective line here for somebody who's younger. Sure, they all know. They don't know what these things look like. And I think that's the first time I'm catching a crack in that veneer of, he may be comfortable or convincing himself he's comfortable. Other folks in the military who have seen their friends and, uh, and brothers in arms who have had uh, injuries, they may be comfortable, but it's suddenly dawning on him, oh, they know, but do they really know? Right. Right. And there's also that sense of this is my life every day from now on. It isn't going to just be for six months while I rehab. This is my life from now on. So that's a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. And I think Homer's the first person to articulate out loud the thoughts that I'm thinking is also going on through the other two guys' heads. He's just saying it out loud. He's the, he's up front. He's a, he's the first one. He's young enough that he doesn't mind sharing some of these thoughts. He's not afraid to, to take these inner thoughts and put them out there. Well, here's where I know he's got to be a younger kid, because Al says... What's your girl's name, Homer? And he says, Wilma. She and I went to high school together. So at most, let's say she was a freshman and he was a senior when they fell in love. At most, they're four years apart. Right. And chances are, most... I mean, there are some of those romances that are that far apart, but for the most part, you're usually within your grade or maybe a grade apart if you fall in love in high school, because you're around that same group of people all the time. You know, you're not, you're yeah. not, you know, it's not like, uh, unless you were in a sport maybe, and, and even then, I don't think there were any intramural sports where you would have, let's say, a freshman playing on the same, unless maybe track and field or some of those things where you might see a younger Yeah, I was going to say track, cross country. Yeah. Um, there are a few. But in, in, in this time, you almost get, okay, maybe he was a senior in high school or maybe they had just graduated and he went to the war effort, but no matter what, I think the girl that he's talking about is relatively close to his age, which means she stayed back home and, you know, graduated high school and did what? You know, supported the war effort, you know, maybe had a job, did some things. But the fact is, she's still kind of a kid. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know how it is when you go away for something like this, where you're going to go spend an extended amount of time overseas or whatever well you come back in three months or six months or a year and everybody else is kind of on that same arc that they were on when you left but you've changed right. you know you've been through military service or you've been overseas to do something or, or whatever your life is totally different totally different arc and you've now got to kind of plug back into their world. Yeah. And that is, um, that's tough under normal circumstances. Well, when um, I like Al here, when he tries to, you know, kind of focus him, you know, by saying, you know, what's your girl's name? And he says, Wilma, she and I went to high school together. He immediately jumps in with, I bet Wilma's a swell girl. You're going to do, Anything you can to make this kid suddenly feel better because you realize here's the guy that's been kind of joking, been having a good time. He's had a smile on his face. He's excited to be in a plane. He can't believe what it's like to look like, like at the earth from, you know, the ground from up here. And that, this is the first time we've seen Homer really show us that there is a there's a somber side. There's a reflective side in it. And and it's it's kind of bringing it down. And it's a heavy scene like this minute is a heavy minute as far as I'm concerned. 
Well, and they they were kind of on course for this conversation earlier because when they got when they first started talking about it and he was lighting the cigarette, he did say something about, "Wow, I can't wait to tell my parents that you know I, this is the first time I've ever been on a plane." He he kind of changed the subject a little bit and and refocused it, and then it kind of came back around to this as they were talking. So it, it the scene kind of grew to this conversation, but. He doesn't know if he can trust these guys. He doesn't know what their responses are going to be or if they even care to talk. So there is a little bit of uh, of trust building that goes on to, until they get to this point. Right. You know, as sort of adults and sort of uh, and mentors, I mean, a sergeant is somebody who's going to be generally dealing with enlisted. And, and more often than not, the sergeant is somebody that gets paired up with, let's say, a lieutenant, somebody who's fresh out of the academy, somebody who's a new officer. You look for a good sergeant who's going to try to maybe show you the ropes and show you how the real world works as far as in the military. And so these guys are natural mentors. And so while Al's asking this question, you know, I'll bet, you know, and then and trying to reassure him saying, I'll, I'll bet Wilma's a swell girl. Homer kind of looking out the window goes, she is like, well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I'm not worried about her being a swell girl. I'm worried about what she's going to think of me. But then Fred kind of taking on that same role as the, as the captain but also as an older officer. And it'll be all right, sailor. You wait and see. Almost like, hey, as long as I say it, like back in military life, if I'm telling you, hey, don't worry about this operation, we'll be fine. That's all you got to tell your troops, right? They're going to, oh, okay. Well, they, well, the captain said it, so let me, let, we're, we're good, right? You have that trust in your chain of command. And the captain kind of, it's it, not that he's trying to use his rank. I'm not saying it that way. I just think it's the natural way that he was used to communicating with troops as, a, as, as an officer. You would just, you would tell somebody, you know, hey, let me tell you, from my perspective, it's going to be okay. And that's all you need to hear. Right. And Homer does this great, great line. He says, because, you know, because Fred says, then it'll be all right. You wait and see. And he goes, wait and see. And then this is where we're going to get back to that line. I told you to put a pin in it. Wilma's only a kid. She's never seen anything like these hooks. Wilma's only a kid. She's never seen anything like these hooks. And you suddenly realize when Homer's saying, yeah, wait and see, it's no longer that enlisted, oh, yeah, whatever the officer says is, is, is going to happen. It's now, yeah, yeah, whatever. She's, she's just a kid. Like, you can tell me all day long that, she, that this is all going to be fine, but she has no idea what I've seen and no idea what I look like now and no idea what this is going to do. I think it's the fact that he almost kind of dismisses Fred, or, or at least almost kind of says his line back to him, but in a way that's like, yeah, whatever. Wait and see. Wilma's only a kid. Hey, they went to high school together. They were equals before he left. And even he recognizes there's no way that we're on the same plane anymore. Now, as much as I want to believe it, as much as I hope everything's going to go right back to normal, you're lying to yourself. And he knows it. Right. And at most, you know, she's. 22 maybe um if he's been gone four years but right um yeah she this is going to be something that she had no idea she was going to be dealing with now we're he's making the leap we don't know we haven't seen the scene obviously later in the movie there will be the rejoining there's going to be the the homecoming scene there's going to be that moment and we're going to have to wait and see how they react to one another he may be just projecting his worst fears 
but they are legitimate projections right now based on where he is in this moment. Sure. Sure. Well, and he knows it's going to be tough on her. And so there is that unknown of does she stay or does she go? Like a, it's a clash song. Should I stay or should I go? There, there you go. <laughs> I thought about that as soon as I said it. <laughs> the wisdom of the clash. <laughs> if I go, there could be trouble. But if I stay, it could be double. Well, it's very applicable to this, isn't it? <laughs> could very well be. So what I liked about this minute is we had leading up to it kind of that jocularity and sort of that banter among military folks, that recognition of they've all been through a lot. They've all served. They're all going home. They're happy to be going home. We're finally getting to the undercurrent. What really is on their minds? We've had little hints, little dropped moment here or there. But this whole minute, to me, is all about what's really happening in every soldier's mind coming back home. Like, this is that microcosm of, well, if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we don't even have any insight yet to the other two guys. We're just getting it all from Homer. But the fact that they're looking at him the way they are with, with true concern and compassion, I think it's because they understand exactly what he's saying. And they may not have said it out loud yet, but I bet they're thinking the same kinds of things. They don't have maybe a broken hand or a a missing hand, but in some ways they may have other things that they're going to be dealing with. Well, I think anybody who's been in combat is bringing something home, Uh, whether it be uh, physical or mental, they're bringing something home. Right. And so there has to be that sense as you're, you're making your way of, you know, how is this going to go? And and that's, and the thing is, and, and our brains are so wired for negative, we have no idea the outcome and we can't see where we think it's going. We just assume it's going to be for the worst. Well, and, and, and in my experience too, I think there are two people who, you know, let's just take Vietnam, that year that you were deployed. F- for two people, that year is a whole lot longer. The person who deploys, and their mom. And I think that everybody else, well, and, and wives probably as well, but when you come home, you've all kind of been through the emotional ringer like nobody else has. And so, you know, the guys that you hung out with in high school are happy to see you. The folks that, you know, live next door, they're, they're glad you're home. But to them, it's just been a year to... You and your family, it's been a long, long time, and it's been a hard, hard year. So with it culminating in him coming home like this, with a lot of um, unknown and a lot of, you know, uh, a long life ahead with now this disability, it's, it's going to be a hard walk, right. you know? It's going to be a hard walk up to the house. I think the most important line, and I think this is the last thing I have, and it's just it's circling back around. To use that phrase, Wilma's only a kid. Hmm. It may not be true. It may be that she's grown up a lot too with him away. But in his mind, how could she possibly be in the same place where he is right now? How could she, how could she possibly be ready and mentally equipped to deal with what he, what's happened to him and what he's been through? And it's such a great line because you get the sense they must be the same age. But for you to turn around and suddenly think of the person who was relatively your same age back in the days of high school 
and now you're thinking of them, well, that's just a kid now. Right. That's a powerful thing to say. But he's also remembering her the way she was when he left. True. True. So, I, I, and, I'm, and I want to make that clear. We're not telegraphing where the relationship might be or where it's going or how much she may have done while he was away. I'm just saying, as of this moment, that's the way he sees it. Right. In his mind's eye, she's 18 years old. Yeah. In some ways, he, you know how you said that he left that arc and she's still on the same one? In his mind, he's still seeing her where he, when he last left her. Like He has no idea, really. And we don't have any indication that he knows what she's been through. Just, I just remember leaving and now I'm coming back. Right. So. Right. All right. That's that's the last note I had in this minute. I know it's a heavier minute. We didn't have a lot of of, of things to to have some fun with, but I think it's an important minute to take seriously because it really does explain a lot about what this movie is dealing with. Well, and it it, it makes me a little bit more aware of what people are dealing with, and I'm gonna I I'm definitely gonna walk away from these ten minutes that we're working on more sensitive to what other people are dealing with without a doubt. And it doesn't have to be warfare. It could be any kind of, you know, significant adversity in their life. No. And, and, you know, you and I have, have talked about this. We, we both know people who just have had terrible things happen to them. And we know other people who just can't make a good decision. (laughs) And a lot of the stuff is self-inflicted, but you still want to be compassionate, you know, and you still want to, be that helping hand where you can be or that encouragement or whatever. But I think with Homer, one of the things that he's, and I'm just, I'm kind of telegraphing his future without knowing it, but he seems like the kind of guy who, when he sees his buddies and stuff, he doesn't want them to act any differently than they did when he left. Right. I agree with that. I think that's true. At least as of right now, you have anything else in your notes for this minute? I do not. All right, well, before we wrap up then for this Thursday, you know, you and I only have one more minute left. Some folks may be interested to know some of our other takes on other movies, including our own podcast. So, Walt, as always, I defer to you. Where can they learn more about us? Oh, we've got some takes on some other movies, folks. Uh, Go to our website, thewilderride.com, and on there you're going to see a long list of all the movies that we have discussed in different formats, whether that be the movies-by-minute format where we've covered Blazing Saddles and... Young Frankenstein to comedy classics, and then a whole list of other movies like Christmas Vacation, The Big Lebowski, and uh, The Princess Bride, and several others that we've covered with uh, some of our friends, and uh, we were crazy enough to cover one with with our wives. But you can find all that on our website and on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash thewilderride. And come on back tomorrow for Friday as we wrap up the week. We've got minute number 10 coming your way. Just a reminder, if you saw this episode or it was shared with you from some other medium and you're like, well, I want to subscribe. Well, that's great. Do it. Go out to find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or go to the website, thebestminutes.com. That's the website that's going to have all of the information about this particular podcast and all of the different teams that are coming together to talk about this movie one minute of the movie at a time. If you're into social media and you want to engage with us or anybody else, you can go to Butch's Place, the best years of our lives listeners cafe on Facebook. And if you're a Twitter user, follow at the best minutes. And tomorrow, come on back Friday. We're going to continue this little moment and we're going to see how does it play 
into our other two actors as they continue their trek across America in this B-17 Flying Fortress. Until then, come on back for more of the Best Minutes Podcast. Dude, that was, that was pretty heavy. Like in that line in uh, Back to the Future. Heavy. Is there something wrong in the future with the Earth's gravitational? <laughs> it felt like it. You know, all I keep thinking about is that, that, that Back to the Future is set just a handful of years after World War II. Yeah, gosh, that's right. And when you start talking about alternative timelines, I keep thinking about, like, what happens if we come back and we're on Biff's world? Oof, that's a bad one. Oof. Although Mom looked good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Mom looked great. <laughs> Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.